Roundtable Osteuropa. Ein Podcast des Zentrums für Osteuropa und internationale Studien. So, two weeks into the ongoing protests and strikes in Belarus, we will try to make sense of the events with two choice researchers today. One of them are political scientists. She studies the relations between public initiatives and state power structures, among others, the police. And I'm sure she has been very busy in the last few days. Hello, Nadia Douglas. Hello. And my other guest, so to say, is Zoe's researcher and political scientist as well. One of his main research interests is youth as a political agent. And he surveyed young people in Belarus just shortly before the election. And I'm sure we will hear about that as well. Welcome, Felix Kravacek. Hello. And I'm Stephanie Orfe from the Zoe's communications team. You are both studying and observing Belarus for a while now and in different research projects here at SOIS. Before we go deeper into that, looking back at the last two weeks since the presidential election in Belarus, what has surprised you the most? Nadia, do you want to start? So, yes. In fact, a few days ago, when Felix and me wrote a piece on the protest movement, young people and the clashes with the police, we were still saying that protests were driven predominantly by young people. And I would add now that these protests are characterized by female and interpret activists. But now, looking back on the, let's say, last week, it feels actually as if the entire urban population is taking to the streets of Belarus. People across all generations, regardless social class, regional origin, political color, And especially impressive, I found the worker strikes of uh, those state-owned enterprises and factories, which come close to a general strike. Where have we seen a general strike during the last two or three decades? I think this is very surprising and, uh, yeah, very impressive because especially the workers have uh, formerly been the most loyal electorate of Lukashenko. Yeah, these were very impressive pictures indeed, and you don't see them a lot. Uh, Felix, what about you? Yeah, I totally agree with what uh, with what Nadia says, obviously. And maybe just to add, um, what impressed me and, and surprised me is, I mean, we're now nearly two weeks into the protests and people still have stamina to go out on the streets every every day. And they pay an extremely high price for that. But still, the protest dynamics have hardly ebbed. And the high price, of course, being, I mean, professional sanctions or the violence that they've experienced. And, and that is surprising, given that there's somewhat of a lack of leadership in this entire movement. I mean, this is much larger now than, than when it began around the election. And although Kalesnikova is still in the country, the protest movement is much larger than, than just herself um, or the three female leaders who have been running, kind of, who have been around the presidential election so active. So that's, that's interesting how that gained a dynamic on its own. And especially given the repressive context, I wouldn't have expected that. The other one is Nadia mentioned the kind of generational spread that we now have and kind of socioeconomic. And just to add to that is the um, geographical. I mean, it's really across the entire country that people are on the street. So that's very, that's very remarkable and something we wouldn't have expected based on what we've seen previously in the country. And maybe the last point is the dynamics of the demands, kind of something that started initially as 
a contest about the election results has now turned into a much larger demand about political autonomy of the country and self-determination and people being allowed to make their own choices. So that's been kind of an expansion of what is desired, which was not, which one couldn't anticipate two weeks ago. Yeah, so coming from the demands, it's something we will probably talk about more and everything else they mentioned. So Alexander Lukashenko's regime in Belarus has lasted for 26 years now, and um, he was going to secure his sixth term in office by electoral fraud, which is probably not uh, in doubt at this point. Why are these protests happening now? I mean, because of the fraud, of course, but why do they gain this uh, momentum? And what are the main reasons that there seems to be this widespread will for change? What lies behind Yes, I would say that um, citizens of Belarus who've been so mostly loyal to Lukashenko for a long, long time, they now just don't feel being taken seriously by uh, him, the president, by the regime. And they feel also offended. I mean, how many times has he said that people that are going to protest are sheep, uh, that are driven by external forces? And Lukashenko has always, despite the subculture, unpopular subculture of people that attend protests, activists, uh, and actually, yeah, in recent years, these people were not representing a vast majority. They were people that, that had nothing to lose because the deterrence factor was so so grave. People were afraid of being arrested, of losing their jobs or student places, uh, privileges. So we, we, we witnessed that mostly there were... Um, unemployed people, there were um, pensioners, uh, people that had been professional full-time activists for a long time. And now there were several other factors why Lukashenko has uh, um, his approval ratings have decreased. There was the, the, the Sonderweg or special path he has chosen during the COVID-19 pandemic crisis. We will certainly come to talk about that in a minute. And uh, a few other things that happened prior to that there were those huge the first social protests uh, in 2017 that were um, result of a very unpopular initiative of the government and ultimately uh, President Lukashenko who issued a decree that was a measure to prevent the so-called social parasitism and that in 2017 was meant to introduce tax for people that had been unemployed for more than six months so this triggered huge protests then we had another Another measure that was tightening the law, which illegalized the possession of even light drugs and was especially directed against young people that uh, protested and mothers of uh, young people that were detained. They continue protesting uh, ever since. And in 2019, we had uh, the initiative by uh, a proposal by Lukashenko to abolish a number of def deferments for male students uh, in order to solve uh, the conscription problem and recruitment problem in the Belarusian armed forces. So all of this accumulated and on top of that, we had the worsening socioeconomic uh, situation with decreasing average salaries and also higher unemployment rates. The problematic of the very fluctuating uh, foreign policy, all of that made people very angry. And COVID-19 was just the catalyst. Felix. Do you want to add something here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to take up the last point that Nadia made about COVID-19, I think that's really an 
not to be underestimated context. I mean, he was disrespectful and cynical in his dealing with the COVID-19 situation. And it's another example where the autocrat fails to understand the people and the desires of his population. And COVID-19 is in so far an important context as the pandemic primarily hit the elderly people. And then in the election, in the run-up to the election, young people were the ones kind of who were more likely to be beaten up and to end up in prison. So this is also a context where kind of interests and frustrations of generations converge regarding the regime. And his failure to understand the population, I mean, they are quite obvious at the moment when you look at videos of his appearance in front of workers that are carried to his um, to his assemblies, where he just, I mean, he fails to perform in front of those who are supposed to be loyal to him and they shout go away to him mm. and he's in it's impossible for him to to even those who are supposed to be loyal and um, to deal with them mm. i think another reason is that there were just a series of really grave mistakes that the regime made so to speak i mean one of them being of course the electoral result was so blatantly falsified that i mean there was just no way this could comply with the desires of the populations. That was probably just just too much. But another one after the election, I would say, was also the extreme violence and then having released prisoners because thereby, even though, of course, it's positive that these prisoners were released, but thereby the violence became much more part of public discourse and was shared through social media and it became part of family stories once again. And that made the violence that young people experienced, of course, made parents even more angry about their regime and the death of particularly young people and the brutal upbeating and so on and so that we saw. So that again creates links between generations in their resentment against the regime. So I think that's an important reason to understand the persistence of of the protests. And then if we ask about reasons, it's it's somewhat surprising that these people continue to protest now for, for nearly two weeks. Because of course in an autocratic regime, compliance is what is most rational simply because the costs are so high of getting involved. And it's for me as a political scientists, really interesting to see how this moment of juncture and the possibility, as small as it might be, of profound change is kind of reducing that fear that usually leads to compliance and that people go beyond and accept the costs, so to speak, of of protesting. Um, So that is, I think that that moment of hope for change is the importance of that is really not to be underestimated. Mm -hmm. Um, You have mentioned the handling of the corona crisis as an important factor. What was the uh, response of the population? Um, Nadia, you you mentioned um, uh, that it had also an effect on civil society. Does that affect the protest movement now? Absolutely. That's been a crucial moment, I think, for society to understand that it needs to take care of itself because the regime fails to protect its interests. So what we've seen during the pandemic is that grassroots initiatives started to organize PPE. Um, So getting masks and doing crowdfunding, crowdsourcing in order to equip hospitals with the required material. We also saw that shops made masks compulsory given the absence of any state regulation on that topic. So, So it's been kind of bottom up dealt with And that is, I think, an important process that then took place among citizens that they can and they must sort things out themselves because the regime fails to do so. And just to bring some context from the surveys that we did, I mean, more than half of young people opposed the decision to not introduce any any protective measures, and only a third supported that decision. But that third that supported it didn't support it because of the arguments that the president gave, basically dismissing the importance or the, the extent to which the virus is a danger. And um, 
that was kind of a marginal reasoning for young people. The prime reason for them was socioeconomic. And Nadia already mentioned the worsening socioeconomic situation. So that obviously is understandable, but it's completely different to what the president suggested as a reason for keeping the country open. And and more than half would have liked to see measures, and in particular young people obviously have also suffered economically under the pandemic. So quite a sizable number has shifted from full-time employment to part-time employment, meaning um, obviously a loss in a loss in revenues. So let me add to this just that the um, government, the president, and namely the health ministry, they completely failed in explaining their strategy. I mean, it's questionable whether that was a strategy, but they uh, had their own logic of acting how they did because they meant to drive a, a policy of mitigation instead of a policy of containment of the virus. And their main rationale was to, to save the economy of a complete collapse. But it was all done highly intransparent and there was uh, a very bad uh, information politics um, from the side of the authorities. And so the population just lost trust and absolutely did not believe in anything that the government said in, in relation to the fight against pandemics. Um, Felix, you have uh, surveyed uh, young people in Belarus before the election and also before that, and also before and after the corona pandemic, am I right? Yes. So uh, were there any indicators of this growing distrust or uh, how does this relate to the role that young people take over in the Yeah, absolutely. So indicators of increasing distrust, etc., are numerous. Of course, I wouldn't extrapolate from there to say, and that's why we see these protests. But already when we did the last survey late June, early July, the levels of trust in the president have been have been reduced to a quarter in late June, early July, whereas previously they were kind of neutral on average. So half of the people kind of expressed it's expressed still trust and half of the young people expressed no trust, but that kind of dropped significantly. Um, other interesting trends that we've been able to capture late June, early July is the kind of increasing discussions about politics. So um, usually young people, kind of, it's not obviously the, the key topic of the interest as one would maybe expect, but in the context of bad handling of the corona crisis and run up to the election, the number of of discussions kind of increased rapidly. Kind of more than half of young people indicated that they often or sometimes talk politics. And when we asked them whether they're interested in politics, that number had also gone up significantly. So if we see all this interest in public affairs, being interested in, in what's happening in the world around them. And they were also very interested, for instance, in the corona situation. So Kind of more than half of young people checked at least daily what's going on with regard to coronavirus in Belarus and their own city. There was much less interest in coronavirus in the wider world, but kind of an interest in in their country and their locality can can clearly be seen. And turning to the election, I think what is remarkable with this election is that 80% indicated that they would have wanted or that they intended to vote when we asked them. And that's a remarkable number and so far as elections usually in autocratic regimes kind of are a legitimation exercise um, so there isn't much point in voting in in many regards for young people especially because it doesn't it doesn't really matter and that's also what you can measure in the surveys my vote doesn't count so why should i vote but this time things were different kind of 80% were willing to vote given that there was a genuine choice for them and and i think these are 
remarkable indicators that importantly relate kind of to this expression of frustration that we we've seen in the aftermath of the election. Yeah, talking about choice, maybe we can quickly um, have a look at the, the election itself. Uh, there were other uh, oppositional contenders who seem to have been quite popular, Victor Barbarica and uh, Valery Zepkala, who were not allowed to register as candidates. And then in July, Svetlana Tsikhanouskaya was a, um, a candidate for the vote. What is her role? Did Lukashenko just underestimate her or what was the development there in the opposition? I think your last suspicion is exactly right. Lukashenko is known to not be having particularly high opinions about women in politics. I mean, there are several statements of his which are very cynical and, again, disrespectful along the lines of women should be cooking the steak and peeling the potatoes but not being involved in politics. So I think when the Electoral Commission on 14th of July decided to have Svetlana Tsikhanouskaya run as one of the candidates, that was because she was judged to be the weakest president. Her husband has been imprisoned very early in the campaign, and she seemed vulnerable because of her two children, who at the time were still in the country. And she was also the least popular of the three oppositional candidates that were running according to our survey. So Barbarica was the one who was the most desired by, by young people, the former head of Belgas Prombank, um, so the kind of the Russian Gazprom Bank outlet in, in Belarus. He was the most popular and Valery Zabgala, former US former diplomat, US ambassador for Belarus, was the second most popular. So taking these two people out seemed like a rational decision from the side of the regime, but they completely failed to anticipate the dynamic that would form around Tsiranouskaya and the fact that the spokesperson of Babarika's campaign and Zabgala's wife joined Tsiranouskaya's campaign and thereby kind of created the dynamics that we've seen in the weeks ahead of the election. So I think it was a, a grave misjudgment on the side of the regime, reflecting on a certain arrogance vis-a-vis -vis, uh, female politicians that is part of, of Lukashenko's worldview. That seems, yeah, that seems one of uh, many misjudgments uh, there. <laughs> yeah. uh, we were talking about uh, police brutality. Both of you mentioned it earlier that uh, it had not, not the effect that was uh, intended, but there were thousands of arrests and also shocking reports of torture in the detention that also internationally raised uh, a lot of attention. And still the protests widened and there was a huge solidarity in the population and the, the strikes you mentioned at, uh, in, in state factories. Nadia, this is a question for you, of course, because you have been observing uh, the relation between society and uh, police or the state uh, institutions in Belarus for a while now. What uh, what happened there? What what was different? Because violence, of course, is not new uh, in dealing with protests. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, uh, repressions and brutal police force against activists and citizens is not a new phenomenon uh, during these elections. We saw that during previous presidential elections in 2006 and 10, there were equally brutal crackdowns of post-electoral protests. And we have to see that uh, these police forces, who is actually the police in, in, in Belarus? Uh, it is the only post-Soviet country that retained the Soviet label of militia. And this is the National Police Service of Belarus operating under the supervision of the Ministry of uh, Internal Affairs. And they have those special forces, uh, Amon and in Belarusian, uh, they called AMAP. They are really indoctrinated and very loyal to the regime. So the biggest problem here 
which has accompanied all protests during the last uh, 20 years or so, is that there's no independent oversight body for the police or any other law enforcement agency in Belarus. And as, as I stated, this is not new. Um, we have statements of the UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights that has repeatedly reported that the police uh, has been used to protect the regime in Belarus and repeatedly prevented uh, peaceful assembly and uh, protests in the country. So uh, what happened in the past was that complaints concerning ill-treatment by public order police have usually not been investigated. And so, the, so far, there's literally um, a culture of impunity in Belarus because there has been no prosecution of police officers for unlawful use of force ever. In addition to that, there's also no possibility to bring any cases of human rights violations before the European Court of Human Rights because Belarus is not a state party to the ECHR. So what we saw now uh, in these very uh, notorious prisons like Orkestina, that the situation in custody or uh, most detention centers in Belarus is very bad uh, until today. And uh, abuse and even torture are a practice that is used as, as a means of deterrence, basically, because it works. People are afraid, usually in the past, were afraid of being detained. But now, as you mentioned, Stephanie, the situation is different because these activists today, they are not so, they don't have this feeling of um, obeyance vis-a-vis uh, -vis the authorities. And they, the majority of them simply does not feel in intimidated anymore from the idea of being held in custody or pretrial detention because they are confident in themselves and they believe that a different system is really possible and will be possible at some time. And uh, there are so many solidarity actions now. And if people are fined, there are crowdfunding activities that assist them. So somehow this yeah, this the system of uh, deterrence does not work anymore. But as I said, Belarus under Lukashenko has always been a police state and it still has Europe's highest police density rate. And we should not underestimate um, the influence of the entire security apparatus in Belarus because in contrast to other post-Soviet states, this this uh, security apparatus and law enforcement agents in particular have proven to be very reform resistant in Belarus. Um, Nadia, we have not yet uh, much said about the protest uh, culture or the, the tactics of the protesters, but you're also uh, doing research as about civic initiatives and protest movements in other post-Soviet countries like Moldova and uh, Armenia. Probably due to the size of the protests and the importance, many have um, have been reminded of Ukraine, brought up Maidan, especially in the beginning. Then the images uh, we see look quite different, and some say it reminds them of uh, Armenia in 2018 with the peaceful demonstrations, the decentralized uh, with the flowers. What do you think about these comparisons? Does it make sense at all, or... Yeah, how useful are they? Mm -hmm. I would say that citizens and activists in Belarus, they 
they are not ignorant. They have been witnessing the course of events and outcomes of mass protests and attempted revolutions, successful overthrows of unpopular authoritarian regimes in other countries. So they have learned their lessons. And we can see that uh, during these protests that have been ongoing the last weeks and months, there are similar driving factors that could that we could also see during other instances of mass protests. First of all, the digital turn makes a big difference today, and as long as the internet is not shut down. But even then, activists found ways to circumvent the internet lockdowns. So the mobilization across social networks allowed for a very fast and decentralized organization of protests. And uh, that makes it very difficult for police forces to, uh, for example, for, for them to preemptively identify key organizers or arrest people, but also to track the, the course of the events. And then we see that the organization of assemblies and protests has been very colorful with young, most mostly the driving factors were young young demonstrators, uh, and they created very cheerful atmosphere with the music. We had these two DJs that really made the people become so enthusiastic about singing the revolutionary songs of Victor Tsoi, Perimen, and all of this. Also, the the peacefulness of the protests that is something we can actually compare to the successful velvet so far successful Velvet Revolution in Armenia, the representatives of the, the opposition, especially the leading figure, uh, Tsikhanouskaya, she always called for uh, for nonviolent resistance, for to simply show the, the regime that they would only work with peaceful, peaceful means. So this is a very convincing movement. And last but not least, there has been no geopolitization uh, of the protest. This is very different to the Euromaidan uh, and can be uh, comparable to uh, Armenia because the protests and the entire opposition movement uh, declared that this is not directed against Russia. Having said this, I would say that the set of circumstances in Belarus is quite unique and it is not so easily comparable to other other um, post-Soviet countries. For example, uh, I already mentioned Maidan or the Twitter revolution in Moldova or Armenia because uh, the most recent uh, history, the economy, social developments and uh, the employment situation and last but not least, the geopolitical orientation in Belarus is quite different and unique, which is why I would refrain from too uh, um, yeah, simple, simplistic uh, comparisons. Thank you. The, uh, you already mentioned the geopolitization issue. Uh, so let me at least once bring this international uh, politic dimension up. Many people were worried about how Russia might react or intervene. And of course, uh, um, from the administration, um, the narrative of this narrative of Western interference. On the other hand, um, in the EU summit on uh, 19th, it was decided not to recognize the election results. Support was promised uh, in the framework of programs and targeted sanctions. So for individuals responsible for the repression were announced. And the language that um, I listened to Angela Merkel's uh, uh, 
press statement was sig signaling very strongly that Belarusians decide for themselves, that there was no interference, so picking up this exact same word intended on part of the EU. So how relevant is this whole international uh, politics uh, perspective for what happens next in Belarus? And how, how do Belarusians uh, look at it? Felix, maybe you want to yeah, I think it's absolutely vital that the EU does frame the events in Belarus as being about people living in Belarus, it's not being about bringing the country to Europe or, or closer to Russia, because that is exactly the framing that we see from, from Russia itself. So there's an attempt to kind of draw Russia's red line very clear at the point when there is foreign when there is foreign influence. Um, and of course, that's not a discourse that the EU or any member states can control because Russia will probably push that framing anyway. And we've already seen that in, in today's media even more. But it's important that Europe opposes that and makes clear that, you know, we don't want, I mean, we can't offer any membership perspective or anything to Belarus that would not at all be in, in the country's also economic interest, I think. But that is at least, that is that is important, even though it probably doesn't change the way this framing of the entire um, events go, especially in the in the Russian media. Then I think it also shows that the EU doesn't have much leverage and, and doesn't have many options. I mean, the sanctions are it's probably important to impose them, but they are mainly symbolic politics. I mean, these people who will be targeted, most of them don't have assets in the West and they often don't really travel that much to, to EU countries. So so they are not hit that badly by the sanctions um, as maybe other sanctions would. And Lukashenko, if he wants to travel, he'll get a sanction waiver visa. Um, so that is also, again, something which is which is only symbolic. But still, it's important, I guess, to, to show the EU's agency, but that it has taken almost 10 days for Europe to, to kind of to make that statement. It's obviously very disappointing for the people in, in Belarus. So that, I think, from their perspective, would have needed to go to go much quicker. Um, but again, as a way of kind of expressing sympathy with the desire to hold free elections and so on, I think that is that is important, even though the real geopolitical impact, I fear, is um, not particularly important. Um, I would add that, yes, I think the best would be if uh, both the West and Russia would refrain from actively trying to interfere in the dom domestic politics of Belarus. Also, if Lukashenko says the same, but it is very, very delicate question because um, either side could interpret it as, as interference and then uh, it would become politicization, geopolitization of that whole Belarusian question. But I also saw a lot of, or some, at least some comments that I found quite promising that were alluding at the, the perspective or possibility that um, the EU or uh, the West um, uh, at large and Russia could find a way of communicating or uh, coordinating their activities again and find a way of return to a dialogue actually uh, on, on that Belarusian question. Yeah, I think that's desirable, but yes. I'm not so hopeful on that. I would, I would just add, I mean, that would be the ideal outcome for Belarus, of course, to avoid being torn between East and West, but dialogue with Russia on, on so many issues has become so complicated. But I think dialogue, not sure how far that can, can lead us. I think one needs to talk about sanctions on Russia if there are red lines, European red lines that are crossed. Um, I think that, that also needs to be brought into the discussion because language alone is something that Russia is not particularly responsive to, as we've seen over the last few, over the last few years.
Okay, so with the last uh, question, let's try an outlook um, and go back to the protests. So where do the protests in Belarus stand now? Can the protesters keep up the pressure? Is the what are the uh, risks and uh, what are, what are their possibilities uh, to go on with their strategy? And uh, what do you expect? Mm -hmm. I would say that it could go either way. President Lukashenko, he plays on time. He is still in power. He has access to all resources and the opposition. Obviously, the op opposition has the majority of the population behind itself. And um, a very promising, promising step was the constitution of a coordination council. But the question now is really who will have the longer breath. And the uh, coordination council has as its uh, major demand the idea of setting up new elections, setting up a new uh, central electoral commission and it all depends now how persistent they can be how long they will be backed up how long will the 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 protesters be able to obtain on the momentum a big problem i see here is especially with the strikes uh, it would be interesting to see if some of those uh, state enterprises announced that announced uh, uh, general strikes uh, will continue so the problem is the economy. The share of state enterprises and combines in the Belarusian GDP is at 47%. Therefore, about half of the Belarusian workforce are state sector employees. If these uh, strikes continue, it, it will be very difficult to uh, uphold the Belarusian economy because these enterprises, uh, they have already been mostly deficient in recent years and produced losses instead of profits. And that is the reason why, on the one hand, uh, the Work, working force have uh, not huge savings, but also the, the the factories, the state enterprises themselves have no reserves for contingencies. Um, so if we end up with an uh, economic uh, collapse in Belarus, the impact or the socioeconomic impact on the population and the state economy at the present moment are not really predictable. And this is an important factor to be considered. Yeah, I think I agree, obviously, with Nadia. I mean, there are numerous scenarios that are that are possible. Maybe just to sketch two quite contrasting ones. I mean, we've seen, and Nadia has mentioned, that these moments of solidarity between the police force and, and some protesters last week, so the week immediately following the election, but that seems to have come to an end and kind of violence is back on the streets of, of Belarus and Minsk has been um, kind of locked off again and its protests are being, again, more violently dispersed and so on. So if the regime gears up repression once again, one possible scenario is that people get scared and get tired of protesting, especially given that there is no kind of real leadership of these movements, but that they are pretty decentralized and that also workers need to return to work because they need money. I mean, at some point, you just can't continue striking if, if you don't get any revenue. So that would be one kind of scenario where people return to work, violence continues and the strikes end and there will be kind of a continuation of of the current regime with much more difficulties, obviously, and complete distrust between between state and society. But that is one extreme scenario that is invisible. Um, another one is, of course, that people continue to be extremely creative and willing to take the risk and continue to be on the streets um, demanding the right to, to self-determine who is their political leader. And we see signs of that as well. I mean, I think Just today, on Thursday, um, there's been kind of a new initiative with people uploading photos of the electoral ballot to the web. And of course, if 
if that gains momentum, if there are more and more kind of these kind of evidence of the extreme electoral fraud um, that one can expect to have happened, that might maintain the dynamics of the movements. And that's incredibly hard to predict because it also depends not only on what's going on within Belarus, but also the extent to which external actors kind of able to send signals of hope or of intimidation. And that will have an impact on how people think about what is in their interest now to do. Is it to go out on strikes um, or to protest or is it to return to work and, and be silent? Obviously, between these two sketched scenarios, a lot is possible. And I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if both of them don't materialize and next week we talk about a completely different situation in the country. So we will definitely follow the developments and thank you both very much for your insights and yeah, your perspective. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening in for this episode of the uh, Roundtable Eastern Europe. Thank you and bye. <laughs>